at ease for you. You don't have to remember any of this, no quiz at the end. Um, If something strikes you as true or useful, then let that uh, illuminate what you already know, and if it doesn't, just um, recycle it. Um, happy to be back. I've been traveling quite a bit, um, but I'm also miserable. I'm in the middle of the last couple of days of the flu, and I've been lying in bed with fever and, you know, aches and stuff, and I thought, well, if I'm miserable, I might as well sit up here and be miserable, so I <laughs> took a whole bunch of Tylenol, and if I don't make any sense tonight, you know, it's just how it goes. Um, I've just completed uh, some weeks of travel and teaching in the East Coast. Well, first down in Santa Cruz Mountains and then in Washington, D.C. and New York, teaching from this new book on Buddhist psychology, The Wise Heart. Um, And in the different circumstances where I have been teaching, what I've met with in many, many people is a great deal of anxiety and fear Um, political, economic, personal, kind of all woven together in some way. Um, And with it, when I kind of look more largely at the culture and the media, there's also quite a bit of fear-mongering going on out there among the the, uh, kind of information outlets I I meant to bring in tonight, but didn't, uh, didn't remember pull it out, the cover of this last week's U.S. News and World Report, which had in in big letters across the front cover, how scared should we be, question mark. (laughs) And it had a picture of George Washington from the $1 bill on the cover um, with one slight change. He was, you know, that usual $1 George Washington, except his eyes were really wide open, (laughs) like he'd just seen something really bad. Um, and of course, it's natural to be afraid to a certain extent when things are changing. Um, but a lot of it also relates to what are the kinds of stories that people feed to us or that we feed to ourselves. This uh, story that those of you who come regularly have heard a number of times, a couple from snowy Minnesota decided to take a winter vacation back in the simple Florida resort where they had stayed for a honeymoon 25 years before. Because of his wife's delayed work schedule, the husband went first, and then when he got there, he received a message that she would meet him soon. So he sent her this email in reply, but because he typed one letter wrong in the email address, it went by mistake to an old woman in Oklahoma whose minister husband had just died. Here's what she read. Dearest, well, the journey is over and I finally arrived. I was surprised to find they have email here now. They tell me you will be coming soon. It will be good to be together again. Love as always. P.S. Be prepared, it's quite hot down here. So it 
pays to take a little step back with the information you're receiving in the internet and the emails and the news media of all these different kinds. Um, yes, when things are changing and difficult, there is a kind of natural uh, anxiety or fear. Fear, I know you, you can bow to it, say, oh, this I know as well. Um, but it's tremendously helpful to realize that for the most part, believing the stories and the fear isn't actually um, a useful approach to change. Um, more helpful is to remain centered and calm um, and wise. Um, in fact, I think not being afraid, that is not giving in to the stories and fears, is an act of resistance at this time in the world, a revolutionary act, if you will. Um, remember Thich Nhat Hanh's um, description when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if just one person, if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. And so there is a kind of question, how do we meet difficult times? How do we meet uh, changing circumstances? Spiritual life involves not so much a set of ideas or ideals, but a shift of identity, a shift from the small sense of self, the limitations of our, of our sense of ourself, what's sometimes called the body of fear and the identities that we carry to rest in our Buddha nature, in the great heart of wisdom and compassion. And the various kinds of practices and teachings, the meditations that we did tonight and that many of you have done over longer periods of time and other kinds of practices are really an invitation to step from the daily worries and concerns, not that they don't need to be tended, but to step back or become bigger than this and rest in the wisdom of the Buddha that is within ourselves, our own Buddha nature or our own true nature. And so tonight I want to turn back to a timeless tradition a little bit as a kind of mirror for going through difficulties, um, as you'll hear. Um, sometimes this awakening from the small sense of self, from the body of fear where we get caught up and reactive and worried, um, is a kind of radical seeing. We go for hiking in the high Sierras or the Himalayas, you know, or we get a cancer diagnosis, or we come back from a retreat that we've been on, and we look at the world and we see it in some radically new way. Thomas Merton writes, coming out of his monastery in Gethsemane Abbey, I was in Louisville at the corner of 4th and Walnut in the center of the shopping district and was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I was theirs, and that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of self-isolation and monastic holiness. This sense of liberation 
from an illusion of difference was such a relief and joy, I laughed out loud on the street corner. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which the divine spark became incarnate. There's no way of telling people that they're all walking around shining like the sun. So we have those moments, and we all have had them, remembering, sensing that there's some greater dance going on than in addition to our daily rounds, if you will. Um, And they give a big perspective to what matters. Who are we? For the question in this way is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. Is there some sense of timelessness that illuminates our days? And then what matters from that? that we love well, that we live fully, that our heart is free no matter the circumstance we find ourselves in. Now, it turns out that you can't avoid difficulties. Anybody, <laughs> anybody who's been able to do so, please raise your hand. You can have your $8 back, right? <laughs> it is inevitable. Personal difficulties are part of the game. You know, cl- Collective difficulties, social difficulties, difficulties are not a mistake. And in fact, difficulties are the precise best circumstances for learning freedom, it turns out. This from Tony Merton, the first woman to row solo across the Atlantic Ocean. She writes... If you know what it means to be out in the middle of an ocean by yourself in the dark, scared, then it gives you a feel for what every other human being is going through. I row an actual ocean. Other people have just as many obstacles to go through. So the point isn't to avoid difficulties, which we can't. Not that that they're not a mistake, but rather... Even when we reach our limit, when it seems like this is more than we can handle, to realize that we can be present for the way things are, that that is given to us, it is part of our own capacity, our own true nature. Sometimes we wake up in a moment, as Thomas Merton did, and sometimes it's slowly. With patience, we sit in meditation, we do a... a, a practice in our gardening, in our yoga, in our mindfulness. And it's what we learned um, very much in the trainings in the Buddhist monasteries, to do things over and over again. Do not, says the Buddha, ignore the effect of wise attention, saying this will come to nothing. Just as by the gradual fall of raindrops the water jar is filled, so in time the wise become filled with goodness. And so it's the kind of drop-by-drop attention and caring. Now sometimes, for young people especially, there is a need for testing ourselves. When you get a little bit older, you don't need to test yourself because the tests have come. You know, they will come. They're inevitable. But it's called initiation. When somebody's young, you know, I, I work with young men, um, and and the the kind of attitude is is there anything dangerous to do around here? You know I want to do it. I want to show myself. And um, 
It is in difficulties, whether it's deliberately chosen or whether, as in many cases, it comes to us that we learn the, the, the real practice of our heart. Suzuki Roshi, Zen Master, San Francisco Zen Center, writes, Suppose your children are suffering from a hopeless disease. You don't know what to do. You cannot lie in bed. Normally, the most comfortable place for you would be a warm, comfortable bed. But now, because of your mental agony, you cannot rest. You may pace up and down, in and out, but this does not help. Actually, the best way to receive your, to relieve your suffering is to sit in meditation, even in such a confused state of mind and a bad posture. If you have no experience sitting in this kind of difficult situation, you are not yet a true student. No other activity will appease your suffering. In other restless positions, you have no power to accept your difficulties. But as you sit, you have you've acquired the stability of a long, hard practice, and your body and mind have the power to accept things as they are, whether agreeable or disagreeable. In continuous practice, under a succession of agreeable and disagreeable situations, you will realize the marrow of meditation and acquire its true strength. So when people go on retreat or they come for meditation trainings and they come and they say they're having a hard time, secretly I go, yay, you know. Now they're really learning something. I mean, beautiful, joyful times dissolving into light and becoming one with the trees and the raccoons and so forth. That's also good. I go yay for that as well. And then the little part of me with the last Chris says, and it won't last. But while it's there, you know, enjoy it. But the other is a rite of passage in which you go through a rocky, hard place that's so narrow that you have to leave your old baggage behind you and come out somehow anew from it. And of course, in Tibetan Buddhist practice, they pray for these things, if you can imagine. you know, Grant that I may have enough suffering that the great heart of compassion will awaken in me. Imagine asking for it. <laughs> Go ahead, writes one in Indian saint. Light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods, but watch out, because the gods will come and they will put you on their anvil and fire up their forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. Okay, I want to do spiritual practice, someone says. Be careful what you ask for. But there is something in us that knows that we have to look at this mystery of incarnation and not just be at the effect of praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow, they come and go like waves of the ocean all the time. And we can either react to them or we can find the one who knows, the, the, the place of freedom within our hearts. And this is what is offered in meditation and spiritual life. Now, to go on, I'd like to describe going way back in in, in uh, this timeless tradition to describe a little bit about the ordination of a Buddhist monk 
which seems somewhat distant from our current financial or political or personal circumstances, but maybe there's some link that I can make. We'll see how it comes out tonight. I'm hoping so. Um, Because in modern times, um, we have the notion that if you do it right, you won't have difficulties and you'll have a comfortable life and things will all be okay, you know, if you do it right. Anybody done that, by the way? I'm just checking here. There's one hand back there. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, Things will change. (laughs) So, in Buddhist cultures like Thailand or Burma, Cambodia, Laos, the tradition was for young men and young women too. to go into a monastery as a rite of passage, as an initiation at age 20, sometimes for a year to undertake a kind of training. And you were considered not a ripe member of society. You were like a green mango if you hadn't gone into the monastery. You weren't considered ripe in the way that would allow you to work well or have a family or have a wise relationship. And, of course... Going into the monastery, depends where, which culture or country, it wasn't just, uh, oh, let's go and have a you know, quiet meditative time. In Japan, when you enter a Zen monastery, they don't even accept you unless you prove yourself. You have to go sit outside the gates, it's called Tangario, sometimes in the snow, you know, and show that you're really serious about learning Zen practice. And the monks inside would kind of look out and say, yep, we got somebody sitting out there again. I wonder how long they'll last, you know. And, oh, he's been out there for two, three days. It's pretty cold out there, still sitting. I think we got a live one, you know, let him in or something like that. There's some way in which you have to show that there's a, a kind of sincerity as you enter. In Thailand, where I ordained, you reenact the ritual of the Buddha. The, the night before you go in the monastery, there's a celebration and a big banquet, and you're feted with this wonderful food, um, and then you're dressed up as a prince, like Prince Siddhartha, with uh, white silk and gold and jewelry, and if, you're, if your family can afford it, you're, you're brought to the monastery gates on an elephant, right? So there's this whole big kind of wonderful rigmarole Um, And then you get down off the elephant and you give away all the gold and jewels and all the things that you're wearing. And there you are just in these very simple white uh, cotton cloth uh, and you're taken inside and your head is shaved and you're led into the depths of this great forest with a minimum of 10, usually 20 elders to a sacred ground that's been prayed over every square foot of it. They've done a kind of special prayer for. Sometimes it's surrounded by water or by great ancient trees. And when you sit down there and pay your respects in this place of refuge, then you're addressed quite respectfully. They say, O nobly born, what have you come for? And O nobly born is the phrase that begins many Buddhist texts. O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, do not forget who you really are. O you who are born of the family of the awakened ones, remember your true nature. And this nobility, it's very important in the Buddhist tradition. Um, 
that this nobility has nothing to do with caste or race or, or class. Uh, um, in the, from the time of the Buddha, there was this really radical teaching because there was a lot of uh, caste and a lot of racism at that time, as there still is, both worldwide and certainly in some of the Buddhist world. Um, and the Buddha made a, a profound statement, um, not just in words, but in the creation of the community of practice, saying that caste and class and race and color mean nothing. Absolutely nothing. They mean nothing about who a person is. And your nobility depends solely on the dignity of your heart. And we welcome everyone. In fact, he, he had a um, one of the stories is he had a prince and the prince's um, attendant who was kind of the, the person who swept out the stables for the prince's horses both come to ask for robes. And the Buddha made sure that the stable cleaner was ordained first and then the prince second, which meant that when you're, once you're ordained, you have to bow to your elders. It meant for the rest of his days that the prince had to bow to the fellow who'd been cleaning out the stables. Um, it was so important that the that the real nobility was seen in each person. You're dressed in this way. Um, and then the elders who surround you um, ask, uh, are you free to ordain? Are you free from debt? <laughs> Modern times that would be a little tougher. But anyway, um, are you f- coming of your own volition? Why have you come? And you answer their questions. Um, and then you are given vows to lead you to uh, the practices of awakening um, for the time that you are in the monastery. And the teachings that you're given say, in the great cycles of birth and death, there is a liberation to be found, and that liberation is available to each person who awakens their own Buddha nature. A heart free of conflict and fear of greed and hatred is possible for you. And here are the practices that you can do to free yourself. I remember my teacher at that time said, I hope you're not afraid of suffering, which I thought was a funny kind of greeting. He actually greeted me when I came to the monastery. I said, that's a funny kind of greeting. He said, well, there's two kinds of suffering. The kind that you run away from, which follows you everywhere, and the kind which you turn and face And only that is the suffering that brings you to freedom. And when you say, all right, I'm I'm a willing participant and you're giving your new robes and and, um, bowl, you commit, you make a bow and commit your body and speech and mind to the brotherhood or the sisterhood of the spirit, to the followers of the way, and say, for this time I join this community, I will practice with uh, a sincere heart. And you're given a new name. And your name might be something... They're usually aspirational names. You know, luminous virtue or the birth of patience. They'd give that to an impatient person. You know, (laughs) or aspires to peace or something like that. And then they give you a series of um, practices. And the first uh, teachings they give you is how to calm yourself or quiet yourself in the midst of the changes of the world. They say to you, everything is in change. Gain and loss, praise and blame, joy and sorrow, fame and disrepute. 
light and dark. These are the warp and weft of human incarnation, and they will continue to change. Everything is impermanent. It is like the uh, cartoon I like to talk about from the San Francisco Chronicle that showed the uh, family crossing the desert on camels, the father on a big camel with his carpets and luggage and the bags and the mother on a camel behind him and then three kids on smaller camels behind him and the little girl and the dad are having a conversation. And the father says, stop asking if we're almost there yet. We're nomads for crying out loud. Right? <laughs> and so the elders say, this is the nature of incarnation. There is no, uh, no surcease for the river of experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, the sense experiences change, feelings change, perceptions change, thoughts change, circumstances change. How will you live in this world of change wisely? Helen Keller, who writes, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And so you're given the teachings of change, that everything changes, and then the instruction to take your seat in the midst of it all, to take the one seat in the center of the world that can allow the waves of fortune, of joy and sorrow, and gain and loss pleasure and pain to rise and fall and to rest in an open heart in the midst of them. Again from the Buddha, he says, live in joy and love even among those who hate. Live in joy in health even among the afflicted. Live in joy in peace even among the troubled. Look within, be still, Free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of the way. And to do this, you're given the practices of breathing in and out, calming the body, breathing in and out, quieting the mind, developing the quality of equanimity, coming to rest in the present through mindfulness, through steadiness, through concentration. And little by little, you learn to take this seat with mindfulness and see the dance of your experience and begin to trust the space of awareness. Now, to support this, you are also taught and instructed to move and live with dignity. How to fold your robes, how to carry your bowl, how to walk with a certain sense of dignity when you go out to get your alms food, to remember the purpose of your life in the monastery. And every morning we would do chants with this food that I receive, with this robe that I have, with this bowl, I will use this in order to bring benefit to myself, to awakening to myself and others. And the beautiful thing about it was simply the way that people treated each other not just people, but creatures. I mean, whether it was the, you know, the snakes and the wild 
fowl of the forest, or even the little bugs. Even the little bugs were given a kind of respect. You know, you didn't step on the ants or squash them. You kind of move around them. Everything had its dignity. And because of this dignity, there's a certain power in those cultures. So that back in the 1970s, when there was a a very uh, active and um, somewhat bloody, uh, partly student-led revolution in Bangkok um, against one of the military coups, and there was a lot of fighting in the streets, and um, quite a few people were killed. When it got to the high point of it, there was a famous uh, meditation master who called all the monks from his own monastery, monks and nuns, and from some nearby forest monasteries together, and ended up with several hundred monks. And they walked barefoot into Bangkok from outside um, during the height of this fighting, early one morning, and simply placed themselves between the two sides and spent the day standing there. They stood for the day. um, And everything stopped. Nobody would shoot around the monks or throw rocks or bottles or Molotov cocktails or anything else. Just to see the robes of the monks and the nun was a reminder, ah, there is a dignity, there is a presence, there is a possibility that we have of living in this world in a different way than the way we've been caught up. So dignity, ways of calming the mind and seeing the flow of impermanence and taking a seat in the midst of it, resting in the middle of gain and loss and joy and sorrow. Also a certain kind of surrender to the presence, present. Um, when you'd go out with your bowl to get alms food, sometimes you'd get this wonderful food that was offered. Sometimes you got very little. And there was a kind of sense of grace that whatever came would be enough. There was a surrender in it to realize that you could live and you could survive. And I think part of the fear-mongering, whether it's political or financial or other things out there, is that, oh, everything's going to end if the wrong thing happens. And we're survivors. You are a survivor. We have one of the things that makes human beings so remarkable is this profound capacity to adapt and shift and change and to survive even great difficulties, which you have. And this capacity to survive, it can be a kind of fearful reactive, which often then makes things worse, or it can be from a place of wisdom and understanding and caring and centeredness, a kind of sacred attention to our circumstance. Yes, this is difficult. How do we find our way through it? Especially in this time of managed care, this is about the health system we have, more emphasis seems to be placed upon medication and the quick amelioration of symptoms, short-term work, and privatized profit-making clinics than upon the lovely and mysterious alchemy that comprises the healing cords between and within people, the cords that soothe our terrors and help us be whole. And there's a kind of alchemy in meditation in the same way. When we face our difficulties and face the problems and the 
circumstances that come up that are hard for us to sense that we do intuitively know our way through difficulties if we center ourselves, if we quiet ourselves, if we stop, take a breath, listen to the heart as much as to the (coughs) thoughts in the mind. Some of the other trainings that one is given as a young monk or nun include those that give a big perspective. The big perspective comes, for example, from the charnel ground practice where you would sit in the forest um, and do prayers when people's bodies are brought for the funeral um, service to the funeral pyre and then reflect on what really matters in your life. Reflect on the brevity of life and the certainty of death. And it's clarifying, as you know. Um, Or to spend time in solitude. And my experience being in solitude uh, is that it wasn't really that easy. Because every past wrong, every self-judgment, every fear, everything that you want, every desire, it all comes up. And the mind has no pride. You know, there you are sitting quietly, thinking you're going to meditate and be calm and so forth. And then the mind just regurgitates everything, you know, and how you should be and how things should be and why things aren't the way they should be and, you know, why didn't you do that and so forth. Florida Scott Maxwell writes, no matter how old a mother is, She watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. (laughs) And and there's something that happens in meditation in which all the judgment and all the ideas about how we're supposed to be that have been programmed in there from certainly one incarnation, if not many, they all come up. Um, And underneath that, one learns, you learn, to find the space of awareness that says, yes, thank you for your opinion, I understand that, and here we are, here's the next breath, here's the next step, a kind of grounding in the reality of the present, learning that this is where we are, not in the past, not in the future, and that it's never too late to start over. The quality that Suzuki Roshi calls beginner's mind invites you, no matter what is happening or what has happened, no matter how difficult it is, it is never too late to start again. It's it's a gift to us. And modern neuroscience, of course, has really reiterated this with the whole notion of neuroplasticity. The idea until 20 years ago was that your brain was pretty much fully formed at age 19 or 20, And after that, it was basically downhill uh, from there. But now, of course, the fMRIs and studies show 
that our brain and neural system is growing and changing all the way to the very end of our life. And that if you're 80 years old and you decide to take up the violin and practice assiduously for a couple or a few years, and they do a brain scan, those parts of your brain that map to the movements of your finger on the violin fretboard will... uh, will have grown all these new neurons and be a lot thicker because you practice it. What you practice creates who you will be. And it is never too late to start again. It's never too late to forgive. It's never too late to find compassion for yourself or another. It's never too late to find freedom even when you're caught. And as you practice then, you more and more start to trust the space of awareness, the reality of the present. As Alan Watts says, the art of living is neither a careless drifting on one hand nor fearful clinging on the other. It consists in being completely sensitive to each moment, regarding it utterly new and unique and having the mind and heart open and truly receptive. And you begin to trust more and more that you can live in the present. doesn't mean you can't think about past and future, but you live where you are, as a monk or a nun or a lay person. And then from this, there grows quite naturally a deep compassion, because you see all the ways when you're present, all the ways that we get caught up and frightened and hurt ourselves and one another, When you're really present for it, you feel it, it touches you. And when it touches you, you realize it's just us. We're all in it together. And this sense of connectedness grows as we live more deeply and fully in the present. It's like Archbishop Tutu who says that when you live in Africa, in Africa when you ask someone, how are you, the answer is always in the plural, even if you're talking to just one person. A man will say, we are well, or we are not well. He may be quite well, but his grandmother is sick. So he will say, we are not well. The notion that we are separate from one another as isolated human beings is really a fiction. And as the mind gets quieter, the body settles, the heart starts to reopen and connect, it just becomes more and more obvious that it's family. And um, it's a weird family, no question about it. But that's how, that's how families are. I mean, if you haven't looked at you know, your own family, even to look for a moment, you see that, and then you look and say, wow, what a weird family I was born into. It's the human family. But it's also colorful, you have to admit that. I mean, it's fantastically colorful. So I'm telling this story of this rite of passage, if you will, for young men and young women who might stay for a year or sometimes a lifetime, but more often some months or a year, not because it's some old tradition in a faraway place. Um, And it is true that we have lost some rites of passage in our culture, especially for our young people. But I don't mean by telling this that you have to go to Asia and shave your head and climb in the Himalayas or find some distant jungle and join a monastery. 
Instead, what I speak of is the longing that is universal in us for integrity and dignity, for wholeness and centeredness. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, put it this way. He said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come and drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You'll see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. And it was really the invitation to find this in yourself that was part of the monastic training. But it's the invitation to all of us, to our own Buddha nature. This is a universal journey. And it turns out that whether you're parenting, then you have that baby retreat for some years where you're, you know, instead of getting up early in the morning to do chants in the Buddha hall, you're getting up early morning to, you know, nurse the baby and change the diapers. And it's pretty much the same practice. Gandhi called it blessed monotony, right? The daily rounds. Or maybe you're not parenting. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're dating. That's even worse, right? There's a practice for you. Or maybe you're in a partnership, you're married, you know, or you have a partner. Or maybe you have a startup company. And maybe your startup company is your monastic practice that takes dedication and dignity and, and presence and perseverance and care and compassion. Or maybe it's your service as a gardener or a teacher or a nurse. All of these can be a powerful form of initiation but not because they're easy. Often it's the hard part. Like this woman, Ginger, who came to see me. You know, we were talking about Ajahn Chah's practice of sitting by the clear forest pool, but her brother was in trouble and she had a lot of difficulty at work and she had hep C and her body wasn't doing well. And I invited Ginger to sit in the middle of it all, the paradox, the messiness, the hopes, the fears the whole of her humanity. Take your seat like a queen on the throne and allow the play of life, the joys and sorrows, the fears and confusion, the birth and death around you. Don't think you have to fix it. To have a spiritual practice is a blessing because it allows us to enter and engage in this incarnation, this mysterious play of gain and loss and birth and death in a more conscious way, to hold it in its true sense in a sacred context, to bring a consciousness to it, to allow the difficulty be used to awaken a deeper compassion, a greater forgiveness, a deeper sense of freedom. To know that in a deliberate way, what we practice becomes what happens inwardly. I got this story about a Native American grandfather who was talking to his grandson about he felt how he felt in these times of great national and global upheaval. 
He said, I feel as if I have two wolves fighting in my heart. One wolf is a vengeful, angry, violent one. The other wolf is a caring, compassionate one. The grandson asked him, Grandfather, which wolf will win the fight in your heart? And the grandfather answered, Whichever one I feed. So having the consciousness to hold our difficulties, our joys and sorrows, as a sacred practice, to use them for freedom, to deliberately cultivate and nourish that joy that the Buddha spoke of in the middle of difficulty, that presence and truthfulness and patience, no matter what arises. To awaken the one who knows in us, the knowing. You know, I like to use this image of when you look in the mirror, you notice that you've aged, right? But the weird thing is that you don't feel older. You know that experience? And that's because it's only your body that's aged. And the body does. It's born and it ages in time. But the mind doesn't exist in time. Consciousness is timeless. And even in that moment of looking in the mirror, there is a deep knowing, oh, look at that, it's getting older, isn't it? You know, (laughs) wrinkling, sagging, whatever it's doing, you know how it does. And losing its hair, as my case, etc. But there's a part that knows. There is a profound and spacious and timeless consciousness that says, ah, yes, look at this too, that knows even when you approach your death, they'll say, oh, wow, this incarnation, this was an amazing dance, wasn't it? This part that knows the one who knows, which is the elder in us, the Buddha in us. And we can awaken this. The point isn't to get to some state of enlightenment, but to rather trust more and more the living reality of the present, to to trust your own Buddha nature. Death Row Prisoner, who wrote, Don't hang your head. No matter what was done to you, they can't take your soul. So, difficult times, sometimes they are. Um, What a good group of people to go through them with. Really. What else could we want, you know? And not very complicated. But take the time to meditate, to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge so the door can swing open easily into the garden. You can always go there. This is a poem from a friend who lived nearby. Take the time to quiet yourself, to quiet the mind, open the heart, remember what really matters to you. Rest in the space of awareness and say, yes, this is so. This is the truth of what's so now. You can bear it. It's the running away that's unbearable. But to learn, as Suzuki Roshi says, the marrow of meditation, it's actually through turning to face 
fear, anxiety, difficulty, loss, and say, yes, this is part of the human dance. And to face this from your own Buddha nature, your own wise heart. And I end with this prayer, if you will, from Diane Ackerman, a poet. She writes, In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, as an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors and the day that embraces it, and the plants bursting with seed and the crowning seasons of the firefly and the apple, I will honor all life wherever and in whatever form it may dwell, on earth my home and in the mansions of the stars. And her prayer, which is like a bodhisattva vow, is really a a poem to the heart. It says, what will you honor? What will you carry? What spirit, what light or lamp will you carry through times of difficulty? Make of yourself a lamp, says the Buddha. Make of yourself a light. So let's sit for a moment. And as you sit, let yourself reflect on the particular difficulties or fears, confusions, struggles that you may be facing in your own life, individually or collectively, at this time. Remember them. And sense what it is like to turn toward them rather than away. To turn toward them with a quiet mind and a wise heart. To see them with the eyes of a Buddha. Whatever they are. Great, spacious and wise heart. To see them with compassion and understanding.
One last little announcement and a short chant to end. Um, next week, I believe, uh, Bernie Glassman, who is a Zen master and founder of the Zen Peacemaker Order, will be here teaching. He's a wonderful teacher. Um, also, I want to urge you to get political at this time. Um, Gandhi said, those who say that spirituality has nothing to do with politics do not know what spirituality really means. Um, that our body politic is as part of our life as is our environment or our physical health. Um, and whatever your political views and persuasion, Republican or Democrat, Libertarian or Green, um, we're in the middle of some really serious decisions that need to be made. Um, and it's a time for some genuine vision in this culture. Um, so whatever your heart is called to support um, and that you believe will really help, do it, you know, and phone bank or go to the places that, you know, register or take people to the polls or whatever it is that will empower the body politic from the wisest place in your own heart. They're not separate, these two. And uh, it feels like a really important time to pay respect to our communal politics as part of our spiritual life. Do it as a Buddha. It's a very interesting practice. And let me know how it worked. I will be. I'll let you know too. So our chant for tonight, the last... In uh, India, when you meet a person, the tradition is to put your hands together and greet them with the word namaste, which means, I honor the divine within you. I see your Buddha nature, your spirit, who you really are. And the root of the word namaste in Sanskrit or Pali is the word namo, which means to bow to or to honor. So I'd like us to chant namo nine times. And as we do, you can feel inwardly what you would like to bow to. Maybe just to your own dedication or to someone that you respect or to a place in, of difficulty in the world that needs your attention or to something that you feel um, you know, inspired by. And we'll chant Namo nine times and then go out into the autumn evening. Na No.
the spirit of dignity and inner freedom, compassion in the days and the week ahead. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you come to the temple for the evening and carry the perfume out with you. Good night. Drive politely out there in the parking lot. It's crowded. Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.